Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we explore London, taking in the capital's first and best man-made viewpoint, the room where a shy 18-year-old girl became a queen, an ancient secret garden, a house shared by two of the world's greatest musicians, and a green museum at the gates of a palace. Stop 1. The Monument Quite the best view to be had of London is from the viewing platform at the top of the monument, which was built in 1677 by Christopher Wren and the scientist Robert Hooke to commemorate the Great Fire of London. Situated right in the heart of the city, at the north end of London Bridge, the monument was London's earliest observation deck. In total, the monument is 202 feet high, the tallest isolated stone column in the world and rather cleverly stands 202 feet from where the fire broke out in a baker's shop in Pudding Lane on the 2nd of September 1666. Wren wanted to crown it with a statue of Charles II, but the king quite rightly demurred, saying, I really don't want people to think it was me who started the fire. So a gilt bronze flaming urn was put there instead. To reach the best view to be had of London, you have to negotiate a spiral staircase of 311 steps. Now, if you are one of those eccentric characters who scale the north face of the Eiger in 20 minutes, dressed in just a baseball cap and gym shoes, the monument might not present much of a challenge, but ordinary folk such as me find it quite taxing. Some people puff. Others wheeze. I myself have been known to show signs of roaring as I approach the summit. In fact, such is the exacting nature of the climb that they give you a certificate if you make it to the top. Not to boast, but I have several of them. Someone who almost didn't get his certificate was Dr Johnson's biographer, James Boswell, who made the ascent in 1762 and suffered a panic attack halfway up. He rallied, but soon wished he hadn't, finding it 
Horrid to be so monstrous away up in the air, so far above London and all its spires. Before we condemn the poor man for being so weak-kneed, it's worth remembering that the floor of the platform is narrow, and in those days there was no barrier between Boswell and the drop. The platform wasn't caged until 1842, after a rash of suicides and people falling off. Anyway, the reason I love the view from the monument above all others is that although you can see all of London and its icons, St Paul's Cathedral, the Shard, the Tower, Tower Bridge, the silvery Thames snaking away towards the east, you are not so much looking down on London from on high, but at London from within. You are a sort of interactive part of London. When it was built, the monument, by nature of being the first, was London's highest viewpoint, towering above what was left of the city, four-fifths of which had been levelled by the Great Fire. But for more than 300 years since then, modern London has been sprouting up around the monument like foliage. Boswell's godly spires are slowly being suffocated and outgrown by a rapacious knotweed of glass and steel monuments to money that reach ever higher and higher like beanstalks, striving for the light, God and mammon in constant conflict. Standing at the top of the monument, you can almost see the towers growing up around you, and the enveloping spectacle becomes all the more breathtaking when you imagine all those Stuart and Georgian and Victorian sightseers who must have stood on this very platform over the years, admiring this peerless view of the greatest city in the world. Stop 2. The Red Saloon, Kensington Palace Death of King William IV It is with the greatest regret we have to announce that His Majesty expired this day, June the 20th, 1837, at Windsor. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the Marquis Cunningham arrived at Kensington Palace this morning and communicated to Her Majesty the Queen and the Duchess of Kent the melancholy intelligence of the decease of His Majesty, King William IV. Privy Council will be held this morning. This is the sad news that greets you at the top of the stone stairway flanking what was originally the entrance hall to Kensington Palace. The stairs, incidentally, where in 1836 Princess Victoria saw her future husband Prince Albert for the very first time. 
extremely handsome. His eyes are large and blue and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. The notice declaring the death of William IV hangs on the wall beside a pair of double doors that lead into a small pillared chamber with a deep red carpet and olive pink walls. This is the Red Saloon, and it was in this very room that perhaps the most transformative age in the history of the world began, the Victorian Age. Kensington Palace is one of the more recent additions to the list of top places to visit in London. Until thrust into the limelight in the 1990s as home to Princess Diana, KP, as we cognoscenti call it, used to sit rather aloof behind railings, a familiar backdrop to Kensington Gardens, but not somewhere that invited you in. Referring to the palace's role as a depository for minor royals, Edward VIII called it the Aunt Heap, and that about summed it up. Today, having been restored and refurbished for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II in 2012, Kensington Palace welcomes you in with open arms. And of course, there's always the chance of bumping into the future king and queen and their family. Kensington's role in royal affairs began in 1689, when William III bought what was then a small villa called Nottingham House as a country retreat, away from the smog and pollution of the palace at Whitehall. For its convenience and healthful situation, as he put it. And he hired Christopher Wren and Nicholas Hawksmoor to transform the house into a palace. 150 years later, Kensington Palace would take centre stage in world affairs. This, from the correspondence of Queen Victoria to her uncle, the King of the Belgians. June 20th, 1837, Kensington Palace. At about half past eleven, I went downstairs and held a council in the Red Saloon. I went in, of course, quite alone. Today, the Red Saloon at Kensington Palace, where Queen Victoria held her first Privy Council, is decorated and furnished as nearly as possible to how it was on that day with the same table and chairs at which Victoria and senior council members sat. Various items from the occasion are on display, such as the black dress Victoria wore. She was, of course, in mourning for her uncle, William IV, which has faded to a light brown. And Victoria's first signature as Queen, on the oath to protect the liberty of the Church of Scotland, the first document she ever signed, Regina. 
Hanging on the wall is a remarkable picture of that first Privy Council by the Scottish painter Sir David Wilkie, who named it, with admirable Scottish directness, the First Council of Queen Victoria. Victoria is pictured sitting in the chair of state at the head of the table. The chair is perched on a raised dais, and there is a footstool beside the Queen upon which all the members of the Privy Council would have knelt to swear the loyal oath and kiss her hand. The Privy Council are grouped around her, with Lord Melbourne, the Prime Minister, standing on her left, the Duke of Wellington ramrod upright in front of a pillar, her uncles, the Dukes of Cumberland and Sussex, seated on either side of the table. Wilkie used a bit of artistic licence and portrayed the Queen in white, so as to distinguish her from the all-male company, and to emphasise her innocence and purity. She was the only female present. She was 18 years old, and she had never been alone, or without someone to speak for her, in her life. And now she sat before a room full of intimidating, self-important men who were watching her every move and expression for signs of nervousness or doubt. Their country, their careers, their empire, all were riding on this wee slip of a girl. But, as the Duke of Wellington said, We need not have been afraid. She was born to rule. Victoria rose to the occasion with aplomb. I was amazed, remarked Sir Robert Peel. She is as modest as a child. She is firm and self-possessed and she understands her position perfectly. Lord Melbourne, apparently, was far more nervous than the Queen, his hand shaking as he presented her with the speech. While I was browsing the Red Saloon, I overheard some interesting snippets of information from a rather harassed young chap who called himself the Explainer, and who was, um, explaining to a group of lively schoolchildren all about Victoria and her life at Kensington Palace, and everything that had happened here in the Red Saloon. How the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lord Chamberlain arrived in the early hours of the morning of June 20th, 1837, to tell Victoria that her uncle had died and that she was now Queen. How they had to bang and pound on the palace gate to get the attention of a bleary-eyed porter, who eventually let them through to the courtyard at the bottom of the stone steps outside the Red Saloon. How the princess's attendant at first refused to let them disturb Victoria. We have come on business of state to the Queen, and even her sleep must give way to that. How Victoria came into the room, unaccompanied by her mother for virtually the first time in her life, and how the two men knelt before their new Queen and kissed her hand. The explainer was actually very interesting, telling his story with enthusiasm and just the right amount of theatricality. The children were spellbound, and so was I. Indeed, I learned a lot. For instance, how Victoria was the very first Victoria. Up until she became Queen, she was actually Princess Alexandrina Victorie, spelt with an E the German way, and it was her own decision to become known as Victoria an English A. 
Hence, her signature on the Church of Scotland document is the first Victoria ever written. Also, how Wilkie's picture of Victoria's first Privy Council had been hung somewhere else in the palace, until the Duke of Edinburgh, in his forthright and unexpurgated way, pointed out how silly it was not to have it hanging in the actual Red Saloon. And my favourite story. Apparently, the doors leading back into the palace from the Red Saloon had at the time been made of glass, and when Victoria left the room after that first Privy Council, she was seen to give a little girlish skip of joy. Yes. She was queen. <laughs> I have no idea if that story is true or not, but the explainer told it well, and I like to think it is. Stop 3. College Garden, Westminster Abbey The whole world knows College Green, outside the Palace of Westminster, where politicians squabble, newscasters preen and protesters bang drums, all for the benefit of the world's news media against the backdrop of the Mother of Parliaments. Almost no one knows College Garden. Right next door to College Green, inside the precincts of Westminster Abbey, Two worlds separated by 500 years and an ancient stone wall of 1376. College Garden, in sharp contradistinction to the bedlam that is College Green, is a quiet patch of nature, a secret haven of peace, and the oldest continuously cultivated garden in Britain. One of the reasons not many people know about College Garden is that it is so damn difficult to find. To get to it, you must use the entrance to the Abbey Cloisters at the northeast corner of Dean's Yard, itself accessed from the parking area at the Abbey's west door. This will take you along the South Cloister, at the end of which you turn right past the Abbey Museum. Unless, that is, you wish to take a detour to pay your respects to Afra Ben, the first English woman to earn a living from writing. In which case you should turn left along the East Cloister, where you will find her gravestone in the floor, not far from the entrance to the chapter house. Afra Ben was a poet, playwright and novelist at the court of Charles II in the 17th century. As a spirited young woman, she was sent to Antwerp to spy for the king during the Anglo-Dutch trade war, but was never paid and got into debt, so in her own words was... Forced to write for bread and not ashamed to own it. 
she became both notorious and admired for her courageous and outspoken opinions on everything, from religion and philosophy to science and sex, and is especially remembered for her novel Orunoko, about an enslaved African prince, one of the first anti-slavery works ever written. All women, together, ought to let flowers fall upon the grave of Afra Ben, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. So wrote Virginia Woolf in her essay, A Room of One's Own. But back to our quest to find College Garden. Having turned right at the end of South Cloister, you then zig and zag through a barrel-vaulted passageway known as the Dark Cloister, and arrive at a small elaborate iron gate, beyond which is what surely must be a glimpse of heaven. A small square green lawn with a tinkling fountain at its centre, set against a graceful 17th century stone arcade, and bordered with scented plants and flowers. This is Little Cloister, an area where monks who had been ill could rest and recuperate. Even if you haven't been ill, the beauty and tranquility of Little Cloister will make you feel better. If you can tear yourself away, move around the Little Cloister and you will come finally to College Garden which has been cultivated for almost a thousand years. This was where food and herbs for the abbey monks were grown. There was an orchard, a vegetable patch, beehives and fish ponds, and even a flower garden. Today, the garden seems almost as restful as it must have been a thousand years ago protected as it is from the noise and bustle of modern Westminster by the Abbey buildings, the old stone walls, and now on the west side by the elegant 18th century Westminster School dormitory designed by Lord Burlington. There is a rose garden, a fountain, a herbarium, a huge fig tree, and in the middle of the garden, two large London plane trees planted in 1850. Lying on the grass in College Garden, listening to a summer concert amongst the flowers and trees and scents of this haunt of ancient peace in the heart of London is balm for the very soul. Stop 4. Handel and Hendrix in London. Brook Street, Mayfair. Only in London could a leading 18th-century classical composer and the legendary 60s rock guitarist become next-door neighbours. This unlikely juxtaposition is marked by two blue plaques on numbers 23 and 25 Brook Street in Mayfair, where Jimi Hendrix and George Frederick Handel lived, separated by just a wall and two centuries. The plaque to Jimi Hendrix, placed there in 1997, is the first blue plaque ever awarded to a rock star by English Heritage, 
and number 23 is the only officially recognised Hendrix residence in the world. As well as Handel and Hendrix, Brook Street can boast a number of distinguished residents. At number 69 is the Savile Club, gentlemen's club of choice for writers and composers, which occupies two houses decorated in elaborate 18th century French style by Walter Burns, brother-in-law to the banker J.P. Morgan, while further east is Claridge's Hotel, established in 1856 by butler William Claridge. Described in the 1860 Baidecker as the first hotel in London, Claridge's has always been a refuge for royalty. The kings of Greece, Norway and Yugoslavia stayed there for the duration of the Second World War. And also a refuge for Hollywood royalty, with the likes of Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, Yul Brynner and Bing Crosby, all calling it their London home. Indeed, Spencer Tracy once said, that when he died, he would rather go to Claridge's than heaven. But undoubtedly Claridge's finest moment came one morning in 1972, when the hotel restaurant's head waiter deferentially approached writer Hugh Montgomery Massingbird, possibly the funniest and nicest man who ever lived, to inform him that he, Massingbird, had just consumed the largest breakfast ever eaten in the dining room at Claridge's, beating a record previously held by King Farouk of Egypt. However, I digress. We are here to see Handel and Hendrix in London, a pair of early Georgian terraced houses that were home for two very remarkable musicians. George Frederick Handel became the first occupant of what is now number 25 Brook Street in 1723, just after he had been appointed composer of the Chapel Royal and he lived there for the next 36 years until his death in 1759. Here he wrote, rehearsed and performed some of his most celebrated works, including the majestic Zadok the Priest, composed for the coronation of George II in 1727, and sung at every coronation since. And also Messiah, perhaps his greatest masterpiece, written in a little over three weeks in his little composition chamber on the first floor at the back of the house. The tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus from Messiah apparently began when George II stood to show his appreciation at the London premiere in 1743, although this delightful theory has rather disappointingly been debunked by serious-minded experts. Handel's house has been restored to resemble how it might have been when Handel lived there, with sparse Georgian furniture and bare, creaking, grey-painted wooden floors and walls. On display are examples of his correspondence, original manuscripts, paintings, sculptures, 
early editions of operas and oratorios, and a reproduction of an 18th-century harpsichord such as Handel may have composed on. To wander through this modest Georgian townhouse, through the rooms where Handel wrote and rehearsed and entertained, even the bedroom on the second floor where he died, and to think of the glorious music that was created in those rooms is a most exhilarating experience. And even more uplifting is to attend a recital of Handel's work in the large room on the first floor where Handel himself performed. Bliss. And now for something completely different. Incorporated within the Handel House Museum are the upper floors of number 23 next door, where American guitarist Jimi Hendrix, thought by many to be the greatest ever rock guitarist, lived in 1968-69 with his record player, his guitars, his girlfriend Kathy Etchingham and the TV on which he watched his favourite Coronation Street. Some of his guitars are on display along with handwritten lyrics from his songs and many of the records from his extensive record collection, including recordings of Handel's Messiah, which Hendrix went out and bought when he learned that Handel had lived next door. You can attend the occasional Hendrix house party at number 23, a very different, if equally exhilarating, experience, I imagine, from attending a Baroque recital at number 25. Only in London. Stop 5. Garden Museum, St Mary's, Lambeth. Another of London's secret gardens also lies within sight of the Houses of Parliament, this time across the River Thames in Lambeth. At the east end of Lambeth Bridge stands Lambeth Palace, London home of the Archbishops of Canterbury since the 12th century. Tucked into the shoulder of the palace's magnificent red-brick Tudor gatehouse, Morton's Tower, is a far older building, the oldest building, in fact, in Lambeth, the parish church of St Mary at Lambeth, now the unlikely home of the Garden Museum, the first museum in the world dedicated to the history of gardening. St Mary was built on the site of a wooden Saxon church, and although most of the body of the church was rebuilt in Victorian times, the tall 14th century tower remains. During a violent storm in 1688, James II's Catholic wife Mary of Modena, disguised as a washerwoman and carrying her infant son James, who would grow up to be the old pretender, landed here from the horse ferry that plied the Thames between Lambeth and Westminster. She was fleeing for her life 
from the Protestant forces of William of Orange and took shelter in the dark corner between the church tower and the palace gatehouse as she waited for a carriage to take her to Gravesend and on to France. The dark corner still exists unchanged and when the wind blows passers-by have been known to hear a baby crying in the shadows. The church tower has recently been opened up so that you can climb to the top for a fascinatingly different view of London and indeed of the Lambeth Palace courtyard. Anyway, because of falling congregations, St Mary was deconsecrated in the 1970s and was scheduled for demolition despite being the burial place of six archbishops, Anne Boleyn's mother and a Duke of Norfolk. But it was given a stay of execution after a visit by John and Rosemary Nicholson, who were in search of the tomb of the Tradescans, father and son. John Tradescan the Elder, born in Suffolk around 1570, was one of England's first gardeners and naturalists. He travelled the world searching for new plants and trees for his various employers, the Earl of Salisbury at Hatfield House, the villainous George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, and eventually Charles I, as keeper of His Majesty's gardens, vines and silkworms at Oatlands Palace in Surrey. On his travels, Tradescant Senior assembled a vast collection of plants, seeds and curiosities, which, along with specimens brought back from America by his friend John Smith, the Jamestown colonist who was rescued by Pocahontas, he put on display for anyone to see at his house in Lambeth, which was called the Ark, and the Ark became the first such collection in England to be made accessible to the public. John Tradescant the Elder's son, cannily named John Tradescant the Younger, succeeded his father as head gardener to Charles I and went off on his own travels, donating more new discoveries to the collection at the Ark, including trees from America such as the magnolia and the tulip tree. He is also believed to have grown the first pineapple in Britain, hence the pineapples on top of the columns on Lambeth Bridge. John Tradescant the Younger bequeathed the Ark collection to his Lambeth neighbour and friend Elias Ashmole, who used it as the basis for Britain's first official public museum, the Ashmolean, which opened in Oxford in 1683. Elias Ashmole is also buried in St Mary at Lambeth. Anyway, the Nicholsons, who, if you remember at the beginning of this story, came looking for the Tradescant sarcophagus, were dismayed to find St Mary's Church in such a derelict state, and so they formed the Tradescant Trust, and raised the money to turn the church into a museum dedicated to garden history, in honour of England's first great gardeners. 
The museum, naturally, traces the history and evolution of gardening and has on display historic garden tools and artefacts, as well as items from Tredescan's Ark on loan from the Ashmolean. Amongst the highlights are a 17th century watering can, a bird scarer in the shape of a cat, a dodo's head, various garden gnomes, a cucumber straightener invented by the father of the railways George Stevenson, and a vegetable lamb, a plant with roots that resemble a lamb. Medieval gardeners didn't like the plant very much because they believed it was an actual lamb, which grew on a stalk and ate up all the vegetation around it. Gardening has come a long way since then. Outside in the churchyard, the Tredescant tomb forms the focus of the Sackler Garden, which is planted with horticultural curiosities and discoveries new and old, and has at its centre the imposing tomb of Captain William Bly of the Bounty, who lived nearby at 100 Lambeth Road, in a fine early Georgian house, recently on sale for two and three quarter million pounds. Bly was laid here to rest in St Mary's Churchyard in 1817. Just one more example of the secret London that lies around every corner of the greatest city in the world. Well, that concludes our tour of London and ends our first series on England. In the next series, we visit Scotland, taking in such gems as the Lonely Island Farmhouse, where George Orwell wrote 1984, the most haunted castle in the world, where Macbeth was Thane, the Dark Mountain, beloved of poets and princes, the lake where Rabbi Burns took the world's very first steamboat ride, the largest, longest and finest street in the world, and much, much more. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne and guest stars Rupert Van Sittert and Emma Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynnesIneverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books, available online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert and Emma, to my executive producer, Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review, and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim, again and again, I never knew that.